Romans chapter 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. This is not... Well, the Gentile Christians are listening in. I mean, this is being read in the churches in Rome. So he knows that the Gentile Christians are going to be hearing this too. But his principal audience throughout much of the letter to the Romans has been the Jewish Christians on behalf of the Gentile Christians. He's writing to the whole church, yes. But he's writing on behalf of the Gentile Christian community, which makes up a large percentage of the church in Rome, because as has been true throughout most of his ministry, he suspects that the Jewish Christian community is somewhat persecuting the Gentile Christian community, telling them that they have to become Jews in order to be Christians, that they have to get circumcised in order to really get it. They have to eat kosher in order to really get it. And so he's writing this letter to introduce himself to the church in Rome, coming from the midst of battle in all of these issues. And he knows that probably word has already gotten to the church in Rome that this guy, Paul, you know, you, you got to be careful around him. And so he's outlying his laying out. He's laying out his theology and he's addressing the issue of the law and He's been talking heavily, but not exclusively, but principally to the Jewish Christian community. And hence, he opens this with a statement. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law? Well, that could include Gentile God-fearers who have been in synagogue for years studying the Torah. They would know the law. But for the most part... And that's a tiny segment. That's the earliest convert segment amongst Gentile Christians in the eastern half of the Roman Empire during Paul's ministry. He always started with the Jews in a synagogue, and he was heard welcomed, especially by the Hellenistic Jews, those who were Greek-speaking Jews, and by the God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles who had attending synagogue and studying the word. So... The first two groups were, that really heard him and welcomed him were the Hellenistic Jews and the God-fearer Gentiles. And the same pattern he believes and has good reason to believe because he knows people both in and from the Roman church due to his ministry in Corinth. Good reason to believe that the same situations that he experienced in Corinth and elsewhere are probably present also in the church in Rome. Most of the congregation is made up of Gentiles. Some of them were God-fearers and therefore know the law. But the core group would be Hellenistic Jews and conservative Jewish Christians. All right. And therefore he's addressing and has been addressing repeatedly here on behalf of the Gentile Christians. He's been addressing those Jewish Christians who believe the law is important. That you've got to obey the precepts of the law to be a Christian. All right? So that's who he's talking to principally. We're getting to listen in, but that's who he's talking to principally. And we can learn a lot by listening in. Gentile Christians can learn a lot by listening in. 
Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime? Well, that sounds almost like an axiomatic fact. I mean, once you're dead. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that he says, he doesn't say if they're bound only from a certain age of consent or understanding. So, I mean, it does kind of give you some information. From day one. Pardon? Yeah, from day one. Because people could argue, you know, well, I wasn't under the law until, you know, after I was six months old. I mean, this is stating that, you know, one, as soon as you're born. From life. Yeah. Period. He's setting them in. He's, he's setting them up. He's, well, he is setting them up in what a sense. He's, he's arguing on their ground. He's going to do what he's always done, which is generate an argument in such a way that the people to whom he is speaking will both comprehend his argument and be convicted by their own positions. That was one of the brilliant, brilliant characteristics of Paul's approach. He did it in the Corinthian church. He did it in the Philippian church. He did it in the Thessalonian church. He did it in Galatia, and he's doing it here. He's doing it here. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime? From day one until the end. I mean, once you're dead, it's no longer binding on you. Well, how could it possibly be? But it's a simple point of, of fact. Thus, if that's true, thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged, released, set free from the law concerning the husband. So while he's alive... They're married. They could be separate, but they're married. And he has the die. According to the law of Moses, he has to die in order for her to become free. That's according to the law of Moses. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law according to concern, law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. This is where the Jewish prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah draw the imagery of condemnation against the Jewish people for idolatry and speaking for God typify, characterize their idolatrous practices as adultery. You went and played the harlot with the Assyrian gods. Well, God views the covenantal relationship between the people and the deity as a marriage. And Paul is pulling that imagery here to make his point. His point is not about marriage. So many times people will read this and get all angry at Paul. Oh, he's saying that women are adulteresses. If they, no, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about something else. But he's pulling of almost a fast one on these Jewish 
conservative Jewish Christians who think the law is important. And he's pulling an analogy from the law itself using the image, the type of marriage for the covenant relationship with God. In the same way, verse 3, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. So long, so long as the law was alive, so long as it lived, the covenant community could not be free to live by faith. All right? That's to summarize what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Once the one to whom the covenant community is married by religious affiliation, once that person or thing dies, is put to death, is done away with, then they are now free to align in a new covenant relationship. Which, as we found out elsewhere, especially in Galatians as well as here, earlier in Romans, that it actually was a pre-existing relationship with Abraham. And the true children of Abraham are those who are children by faith, not by the law. So he's pulling this image, this concept from the law, which the Jewish Christians who are hearing this, they'll understand. Now, ha! I know what he's talking about here. Yeah, a wife has to remain married to her husband until her husband's dead. Then she's free to get married again. Likewise, we have to stick with the law even though we are now Christians and we have the Messiah and he has completed our Judaism, but we must stick with that law because that law is there. Yeah, good going, Paul. You just proved our point for us, right? No. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Isn't that backwards, though? Shouldn't he have said the, do- the law died? And now you're free? Yeah, in a sense, yes. But when the law dies, we are dead to it now. And we have died to it. The law's still there. It's still written in the Hebrew covenant. That would have been a good arguing point for those It would have been, but they didn't come up with it. So that's a good point. But that's the way he's generating the argument. There is an interesting juxtaposition switch here. But finish the thought. Finish the thought. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Who is Christ? Isn't that interesting? The one in whom we die is also the one to whom we now can belong. Now, Uh. (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'm going to explain that. I'm getting ready to explain that. I think it's that service servant thing again. First of all, there's a question. And answering this question will help us to get closer to an answer here, and then I do want to hear what the living says here. But, in the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. 
through the body of Christ. Now, there's two possible meanings to that phrase. Somatos. Soma, somatos, body of Christ. Now, the body of Christ in Christian theology and in Pauline theology specifically is what? The church. The church. The body of Christ is the church, the, and not the institution, but the community of believers, the real church, the church triumphant, the, the church glorious, the community of all believers, regardless of denominational affiliation. So one interpretation is, is that membership within the church within the covenant community of Christ is what he's talking about here. But that's not how Paul's actually using the language. Here he means by body of Christ, somatos of Christ, he means Jesus, on the cross, dying for us. His body, which was a sacrifice of atonement for us. He means the other essential meaning of somatos Christos in Pauline theology. There is the idea of the church... And that idea is not 100% wrong. There are characteristics and aspects about being within the church means you are within Christ. Being baptized into Christ means you are baptized into his church, membership within it, and into his death on the cross. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into him. And as we found out in the letter of the Romans, into his death. All right? You are merged into You are sublimated within. You are plunged into Christ Jesus, into the church, but especially into him. And he died for us. We are in Christ, both metaphorically, theologically in the church, and theologically, mystically, typologically, on the cross where we die where we die and where our relationship to the law dies and where the law dies to us in the analogy is the is the marriage to the law or is the marriage to God who created the covenant and the law it's the so marriage it's the, to God through the law but specifically here to the law itself as the way of relating to God. Because I'm struggling. So then if you go from that to the death, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's... What it the puts point the death. is that God died because Jesus was God and man. Right. Or whether the law died. Or maybe, maybe it's both. But I'm it's not, both, but I would make the following argument. While it is both, 
Principally here, his focus is, at least thus far as we've read, his focus is on the way in which you relate to God. He's going to put forward faith. He already has. Talking about Abraham as the father of faith, pre-existing the law, the Mosaic Covenant. He's talked about that already. And here he has, he's saying, the way of relating, of being in a covenant relationship with the Creator, the way of being in a covenant relationship with God is through the law. That's being put to death. And since Christ, if you, you can equate, you can... Okay, I'm glad I brought this in here tonight. You can, <laughs> I wasn't going to. <laughs> it was debating. You can equate... Because last week you never used it. Yeah. <laughs> Why did I this? I already didn't use it. Well, last week I had a heart and a headache. It was quite killing me. Okay, you can equate, and we do this in the church all the time. Jesus equal the Word, and the Word equal what? Well, yeah, you God, but what is another manifestation of the Word? The revelation of God in the law. An expression of that, yes. So, you can do that. Now, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Transitive, remember that? I actually remember that from uh, Jesus equal law. Ooh, the Jews, I mean, love that. Woohoo! But he died. Oops. And as we found out from his own statement, which Paul alludes to here, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to bring it to fruition. So, he is the perfect and complete completer of the law as the word of God and he himself died so is it too simple to interpret that as when Christ died on the cross Mosaic law died and we are we have our grace through Christ dying on okay. the cross that yes that's not too simple with okay. one tiny little nuance the law as the way to relate to God, to become into a relationship with God, to do what God wants you to do, yeah. died. Okay. It still has a role. It's not completely gone. Mm -hmm. But its function as the principal way with, through which you relate to the deity yeah, is put cool. to death yeah. okay. in Christ. The law dies in Christ in that sense. Mm -hmm. I want you to read how the Living Bible renders four, if you can find it. Yeah, it's, it says four. Uh, your husband, your master, used to be the Jewish law, but you died, as it were, with Christ on the cross. And since you are dead, you are no longer married to the law, and it has no more control over you. Read it again. I want you to read it again from the beginning. Okay. Your husband, your master, 
used to be the Jewish law. But you died, as it were, with Christ on the cross. And since you are dead, you are no longer married to the law, and it has no more control over you. Then you came back to life again when Christ did and are a new person. And now you are married, so to speak, to the one who rose from the dead so that you can produce good fruit, that is, good deeds for God. That's another way of putting it, yes. Whew. Yeah, that, that. Lots of verbs. You like that? You like that? That is essentially I what like I that just better. said. <laughs> <laughs> but. Just, the idea is, is that we died, and when we and we actually and Paul actually says that, and Peter says that as well, that in, we die in Christ. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Yeah. That's the essence of that theological proclamation, uh-huh. and that is what's being said here. But where is the stress? He's stressing that the law is dead. He, his, his argument is slightly convoluted, but that he's stressing the law is dead because it died in Christ. We were in Christ and we also died to that law. In the same way, my friends, you have died. I want to find that master part, that husband master part. <laughs> I thought that when he was first talking about the marriage, I thought, well, she wasn't really a principal in the, in the marriage because the principal died. Husband. The husband. So he, she was. She's free. Something else. And under Jewish law, that's correct. The the husband was the principal in the Jewish law on marriage. Yeah. The wife was property. Mm-hmm. That was the arrangement. <clears throat> Once he's dead, and I'm sure there was quite a business in Guido in knocking off husbands if the women <laughs> could afford it. Uh, once the husband was dead. She is free then to remarry. They could separate according to the Hebrew law, but they could not remarry or couldn't divorce and remarry. Couldn't, and the uh, husband couldn't divorce and remarry either. Is that well, under certain circumstances, that was allowed later on. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> God, those were the days. Huh? <laughs> Can I ask a question? Before the, uh, Moses, we had the relationship of faith with God under Abraham. He had set that out. And then all of a sudden we, we get this law. Did the did the people request that a law be given? Or would it have been God's intent to have the faith relationship under the under Abraham's relationship with God? It, do, you, do you see what I'm getting at? So you, you have the life of faith. Where'd the law come from? And then you have the law. Did, I'm thinking that it was the people of Israel requesting Moses to give them a law whereby they could go into agreement and therefore then they made that covenant. It's like God said, okay, fine, I'll give you a set of rules. I'm a jealous God. I want to warn you. I'm not going to want you running off with other people, with other gods. Um, You're drawing an analogy from where the people demanded a king and God wanted wanted to be their king. But the people demanded a human king so they got Saul. Then God, and supposed, and this is supposed to be part of God's initial plan to begin with, although there's that interesting, interesting strangeness in there. 
God wanted to be their king. You don't need another king but me. And yet, I also had plans for David and Solomon. Yeah, but he could work those. <coughs> I know. I, I, yeah. just, I find it fascinating, though. But the, lo- but the law, though, came before the kingly desire to have a king. But, you're, but the analogy is similar in that the, God's will was to be their king. The people wanted a king, so God gave them a king. And at first it was bad to teach them how bad it could be, and then they got David. And God's will and God's plan was so constructed that it was able to function even though they had to have a king, which is the second best choice, but it's what they wanted. God gave them what they wanted. And the same idea you're saying is that God's principal uh, desire is for relationship via faith. But since they didn't want to do that, they wanted it more hard and fast, black and white, easy to do, strict lines everywhere. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Uh, he gave them the law. Uh, you said earlier that sometime back, the laws he gave them were really things that had been in effect at the time. There are as many aspects of the Mosaic Covenant that pre-exist the Mosaic Covenant, like murder, lying, stealing, the principal aspects of the Ten Commandments, fidelity to Yahweh. The principal aspects of the Ten Commandments are present, going all the way back to Cain and Abel. Uh, they're there. They were not necessarily codified. You can each actually see them to, in, in an extent functional even under faith. To, to exercise faith, Abraham had to be uh, f- uh, have fidelity to Yahweh. Couldn't go off worshiping the gods of the Philistines and the Canaanites. He had to be, have fidelity to Yahweh. So to exercise faith, you have to obey the first law, first commandment, essentially. And that's... Uh, that's part and parcel of it. That's, 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 it's impossible to exercise faith without that aspect of it. Which is why Jesus probably, not, well, I don't, I'm not going to try to say why Jesus did it, but I think it's endemic within it that, you know, when he, he follows the Old Testament and says the principal, first and most important law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The rest of the law is commentary. Um, I think that's true. And I think that's in essence what Jesus is saying here. To exercise faith in Jesus, that's forefront what you have to do. Otherwise, you're not really exercising faith. So once they, once they, the people, um, in essence, thought you know, that faith thing is just too ambiguous, you're too not defined, we want something more defined to relate to God with, and they, they now had this law. That was the relationship by which they were able to relate to God, and within it was this idea of, well, if you're married, you're married for life, and you can't marry somebody else even if you get divorced. It, it's, a one, it's a wonderful picture of how consistent and faithful God is, because that law, in order for God to have a relationship through Jesus, Jesus had to die because the law had to die or those people were never going to be free to have a, just a faith relationship outside of that law. If God is going to be true to God's word, then absolutely. And since God is true to God's word, 
that that is true. Of course, God can do whatever God wants, but that's beside the point here. God's true to God's word, therefore, that is the truth. And it shows how faithful and consistent yet he is. He's, he's bound by his own covenants, sure. even to his own hurt. Now, how many years after Jesus' death is this again? Is this about half a century or what? Paul is writing this in the um, late 50s, early 60s, late late 50s. Um, and Jesus died in 30, 33. So 20s, couple decades. Yeah. And it took him that long to come up with this, that we should be faithing instead of no. following the laws? Or no, uh, if you go back uh, 10 years to the beginning of Paul's letters, you see the basic same concept presented. And if you go back into the Acts of the Apostles, which take you back several more years, you see it was present and an issue even earlier on. The, the truth, however, is, is that in the early church, with the original apostles, the disciples, it was a, Christianity was essentially a sect of Judaism, a denomination of Judaism, a way of completing Judaism which did not reject or push the law away or say that the covenant relationship with Yahweh through the law is now no longer valid. Instead, Jesus is an additive to it. Something, it's the law, Jesus and the law. Now, he is the Messiah and he, he provides, he, it's great because now he provides a way for Gentiles to come in, which was actually one of the big sticking points between early Christianity and Judaism. In, in, in Jewish leadership and part of the reason why Paul did what he did was due to a, an antipathy towards Gentile inclusion within the covenant community and especially Gentile inclusion when they don't follow the law Whoa. and then he gets converted on the road to Damascus and completely changes his point according to his letter to the Galatians uh, it was pretty quickly in there that he his the proclamation was of grace and peace without the works of the law being requisite for salvation or sanctification. The letter to the Galatians' whole point is that, yes, the Jewish Christians said you can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but the Jewish Christians were then saying, but to be sanctified, to truly be a Christian, you have to follow the law. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to obey the dietary regulations. And Paul was saying, uh-uh, salvation is by grace through faith, sanctification is by grace through faith. You start by faith, you continue by faith. And that whole concept was present, fully formed in Pauline theology when he wrote the letter to the Galatians. Well, what I'm referring to is not the following theology, but the people's theology. And I'm sitting here thinking, you got this miracle, God presents us to all his people, presents it to the disciples, the apostles, you got this huge thing happening. Right. Well, if you follow and the Acts of the Apostles in the, in the early, early, you know, first ten years of the church, the importance of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is as a, um, a substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death in the vein of the temple cult. Well, that's that was the important thing. Yeah. Concepts such as salvation by grace through faith were not front and center. And that's what I'm wondering. That's what I During those first three years, for instance. Yeah, why wasn't that the question I'm coming up with? If this because is a miracle of God. The reason why is because to begin with, 
Christianity was a sect of Judaism. It functioned within Pharisaic, especially Pharisaic, but not only, Judaism. Hence, the law was a given. The law was a given. Everybody obeyed it, tried to approximate it to whatever degree you could. The good news is, is you're going to have Jesus who dies on the cross for you so that to the degree that you can't keep the law, his death covers your sins. Good. Get out of jail free card. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You died and took care of that gap between me and what I'm supposed to be doing. But the Jewish Christians said, the good, good, good Pharisees that they were said, but you still got to do as good as you can to reduce the number of sins that he had to bear. We see he that bore them off. He bore them off. Uh, I know. That's what I'm not understanding. I'm not understanding why they didn't get that. Well, well, why don't why, we? <laughs> I mean, that's understandable. That's understandable. <laughs> why don't we? I mean, but no, but that's I mean, that's the the characteristic of early Jewish Christianity was Jesus became sort of that the universal sacrifice to cover all the sins that you couldn't stop doing. So therefore, to keep him from having to bear a whole lot more sin than he needs to bear, you're going to try to obey that law to the best of your ability, and then whatever you can't do, he covers. So if you really love Jesus, if you really love Jesus, you're going to do the best you can to obey that law, right? Right. There but you when go. I failed miserably, that's sweet. He's going to cover me. He's going to cover you. But you love Jesus and you don't want him to hurt no. anymore on that cross for you, do you? No, you don't want him to hurt anymore. So, so you're going to obey that law. Amen, brother. Yeah. That's, that's the character of modern Christianity. So <laughs> but you know, I, I didn't see Jesus... Um, deviating from the law except that he healed on the Sabbath day and he did things on the he Sabbath day the that they did not want to He didn't deviate from the law, he kept it. I think he the was Sabbath was made for man, not yeah. man for the Sabbath. And he kept the law in its completion, which is why when he died, it died. It's nice to know that Paul didn't just have a revelation that he intellectually Move yeah, from one point to another point to another point because this is what the church says, but my goodness, a lot of it is what Paul said. And did Paul have many miracles? He, I know he had some, and he, I remember, and he did miracles. I'm not sure. About yeah, he, he, yeah, in his ministry, yeah, as yeah, we so, but that could be just added on as a point of respect by a writer. But what I'm saying is it's nice to know that he moved from intellectually from one point to another and changed you rather can, than it just looking like he had a revelation. Okay. This was it. There was a revelation which started it. But you're correct in this sense. There is a development of precision in articulation within Pauline thought with regards to various concepts within the Christian faith over the period of time that we have his writings. Is it because when he started his ministry, nobody trusted him and believed? Mm -hmm. That's part of it. Also, as time progressed further and further away from the death and resurrection of Jesus with this imminent expectation of his coming, 
continually being stretched out. People started dying off. So he had to start answering questions from the churches like, what's going to happen to those people who died? Are they going to be left out in the resurrection? No, they're going to be raised with us. They go first, we meet them in the clouds. And then as further time moves along, other questions get answered. So by the time he write that, that was in 1 Thessalonians. By the time he writes 1 Corinthians several years later, there's a new precision of question with regards to the resurrection. And well, what kind of body are we going to have? Because we've been dead for a while, I mean, you know, <laughs> deteriorating. I mean, what kind of body are we going to have when we're raised from the dead? So he has to talk about that. And it, it, it's a development. You can actually chart the development of Paul's, of the precision of Paul's thought from the Damascus Road to the letter of the Romans and even beyond into the pastoral epistles, but especially to the letter of the Romans. With the earlier letters being not as rigorous in terms of precision, answering questions, yes, but leaving lots of room for interpretation and development and growth. Later on, he gets more precise and more rigorous in his letters, principally in response to conflict and controversy and the questions that his church is asking. So there is a development in his thought but it's a growth of precision and comprehension in its application more so than he's inventing stuff as he goes along. There's no indication he's doing that, but instead he's developing precision, often pulling from the Old Testament to do it. He does it many times. Paul quotes a lot from the Hebrew Bible. Well, actually from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So your understanding is then, in answer to... Lee's question is that he did have a full revelation at Damascus and it was just a matter of him verbalizing and articulating that for the rest of us poor slob. But he added everything right then. I don't think that if... Was there three years if he went off? Yes. I mean, it's not like it happened in two seconds. No. And even even after the three years of development in Arabia, I think that if you were to have asked him in 40 A.D., some precisional question with regards to the law and salvation by grace through faith, it wouldn't have been as well formed an answer because he hadn't had time to think about it, pray about it, preach about it, deal with churches that were in conflicts over it. His precision seems to have developed over time that the whole concept was nascent at the point of the of the revelation on the road to Damascus and the teaching and the development that occurred in Arabia over the first those first three years, according to the letter of Galatians, that occurred, it, that the theology was nascent at that point, yes, but that it was fully articulated and worked out, I'm not so sure. You can see something very similar in the way in which the church developed the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is is nascent in Scripture. You find it in Matthew's Gospel, you find it in Paul's letter to the Colossians. You find it several places. But fully formed, fully formed, you don't find it starting to be articulated, fully formed until the second century. And it doesn't get codified until the church councils in the third, and fourth, and fifth. Same thing true on the uh, nature of Jesus, his consubstantial humanity and divinity. Scripture makes it clear that that's the case. 
but not in any complete, easy, two-sentence structure. It, 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 took, it took centuries for the church to, to take what it was given and formulate its understanding. So that if you were to ask Peter, is Jesus, is Jesus consubstantially human and divine, 100% human and 100% divine all at the same time? He would have gone, huh? One of my favorite jokes, and it's not a joke, uh, is in the bathroom wall in the men's bathroom in the library at Duke Divinity School Library. There's a little note. I saw it. I sat down on the the toilet, closed the door, and sitting there, and I was reading the wall in front of me. And and it said, and it said, and it said, um, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter responded, Thou art the ontological manifestation of our eschatological expectation. <laughs> and Jesus said, What? <laughs> Thou art the ontological manifestation of our eschatological expectation. We use such big highfalutin words that actually mean very simple things, but we think we meaning a whole lot by using those words. The church developed those types of words to communicate meaning, and it took them a long time to do it. And to clarify it for us. To clarify. If, if you were to ask Peter, is Jesus God? He would have said, yes. Was Jesus man? He would have said, yes. How is both possible at the same time? He says, I don't care. <laughs> They took the church in its debates and its theological arguments and in its fights between the various wings of the church for political position and power within the Roman Empire for them to finally develop and codify things like the Apostles and Nicene Creed, which we say on Sunday mornings. It's almost again like us wanting to be God. I mean, we have to know everything. If we don't know everything, then there's something wrong. And you know, it's that need. To know more than what we need to know. The church frequently falls into the heresy, and it's a heresy, of salvation not by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but by salvation by knowledge. Do you believe this, 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 and this, and this? And if you don't believe it, Lee, you're going to hell. Well, no. What about Abraham? What about what about Peter? What about Abraham? What about you know? What about the early church? John, the early church fathers. Early on, before they developed all of these detailed doctrine, doctrinal understandings, it was a relationship and with Jesus. And is the point of Satan and, and his purpose to get us to anything, to focus on anything outside of faith in Jesus? Mm-hmm. So let's, what, even if it makes it more complicated, I mean, whatever it is... Yes. Get you focused in on something that is good, i.e. talking and thinking and theologizing about the nature of Jesus' humanity and divinity is a good thing. But if you do that to the exclusion of actually exercising faith and going out there and showing other people the love of God, then you've got a problem. And that's what people end up doing. That's what we do in churches. You know, it's, it's, it, we do it all the time. At the very beginning, when Question about the Jews and the Jewish Christians and how they, you know, weren't understanding this concept of grace. I think, you know, Satan was just using a very natural instinct for people to continue doing what they've already been enculturated to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
But that's what I'm saying is if this thing was so powerful, and that's, that's what, I, what I have trouble understanding. Why does it take time to develop? Yeah, why, why didn't it just happen? God could have made it happen. But I know we've got to work through these things. Because human that. beings are incapable of processing that kind of a spiritual download. Well, and there's a headwind. That sounds like the Internet to me. working all the time to try okay. and, and, yeah. and he has the right to do that. Well, as things evolved, everything had to evolve with it. And some of these issues had no need to be addressed until they were. And so when the time was right for these issues to be addressed, they were addressed. One characteristic of Paul's letters are that they are occasional literature. Mm -hmm. The occasion brings up issues which then Paul addresses. Romans is the most systematic of Paul's letters, but it is not systematic theology. He's dealing, in this the last several chapters, he's been dealing with systemat- things systematically, but he's still addressing, addressing issues and problems that the churches have. And he's doing it right here, talking about the law. I want to get us back. I want to get to where we were last time before we quit. Okay. Before we <laughs> in verse Why four, bother? in the same way. Why bother? Why change that? In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. You died on the cross with Christ. I'd say. I'm going to fix Paul here. Here we go. So that you may belong to another who happens to be the guy who died for you. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now that, that last little bit of, chat, of verse 4 here is often missed. I mean, you know, we want to talk about salvation by grace through faith. But we oftentimes end up missing that last little phrase so that we may bear fruit for God. And you could define that fruit in many different ways. I think the most important fruit that we bear for God is proclaiming the love of God for others to hear and know. And you do that through word, you do it through deed, in many different ways. And see, that's it's, why four is more important than two. Mine says two. I bet Carol's would have said two. Jimmy would have said two. Mine says two, God, and I don't like that. Might bear fruit to God. But by doing that, we are bearing fruit to God. Eventually. It results in fruit to God because then people say, yes, I see that you love God, therefore you love others. You're obeying the first commandment. And you're loving others, you're reaching out to others, you're doing good for God in the community, proclaiming the gospel through word and deed, reaching out to the poor, to the hungry, to the naked, doing God's will. Proclaiming the good news that Christ died for sinners, that Jesus is here, that we can have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're doing this. I'm seeing this. I want to be in this relationship too. Bango, fruit for God. So four and two, I guess it depends on where you where, where, where you put the emphasis on. Well, the, historically, is it, an, fruit, is it the apple? Know, bearing fruit to God, I think of, you know, here's my sacrifice, here you are, God, you know. Is it the apple off the tree or is it the pie after it's been baked? There you go. <laughs> well, I like the four part. The servant, when the servant works in the care of the, under the master, whatever he does yeah. is for. for the master, is bearing fruit unto the master. Yeah. When an ambassador when an ambassador speaks for the president of the United States, that ambassador is in effect the voice of the president of the United States. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, 
aroused by the law. That's kind of weird. Yes, it is. <laughs> the law doesn't arouse me to too much. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this one says the susceptibilities of sins which were through the law. For uh, the NASB reads, verse five: For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. The sinful passions that were aroused, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Ooh. Consistent unto God, unto death. Um, fruit unto God, unto death. Yeah, they're saying here, aroused by the law, the law not only reveals sin, it also stimulates that the natural human tendency is to desire the forbidden thing. Death, physical death, and beyond that, spiritual death will be final separation from God. Hmm, that's interesting. Wow. Thank you, Paul. Well, no, that's 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 your that's, that's your commentary note right. in, your, exactly. in your margin that's interpretation. That's it. That's, that's the NIV interpretation there, or whoever your right. commentator is. While we were living in the flesh, now we've done it before, but I'm going to do it again. There's the word that Paul uses. There's two words. We've already looked at one of them. Talking about the body of Christ. Body equals, I'm going to write it in English, soma. And then flesh. And I'll write it in English, sarks. Okay, you can't complain now because this was on the board last week, which we didn't get to, so we're now. That's right. Because you wrote it down. Thank you. We're there. We got to where I was going to start last week. Last week. <laughs> and we got 10 minutes. That's we pretty good. Smoking. Body is the Greek word written in English, soma. Okay. Flesh is the Greek word, sarks, written in English. Important for Paul. Body is always, with one or two minor exceptions, good. Flesh is always for Paul, with one or two minor exceptions, bad. Flesh is the seat of all evil and sin. Hence, when he talks about the flesh, he means sinful desires, which is what he's saying right here. When he's talking about the body, the body of Christ, that's a very positive thing. The one time he, is, he inverts that is when he says the body of this death, the collection of this death. But with Paul, soma, body, is generally, and, almost, and with a few exceptions, a positive concept or word. All right? Now, with that in mind, let's read this again and forward. While we were living in the flesh, Sarks is this stuff right here. That's Sarks, your flesh. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, let's skip that for just a second, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While in the body of Christ, we are bearing fruit for God, while in the Sin of our sarks in our flesh, we're bearing fruit for death. We are engaging in those desires and actions that do nothing but kill us. 
do nothing but separate us from God. Notice verse 5. What tense is verse 5? Past tense. Past tense. Past tense. But it's not the aorist tense. It's the, it's the more general imperfect tense. Meaning continuous to now. It's still going on. It's the simple past, but it's still true today. Remember Saturday Night Live? For my year, they would have at the end of the weekend news report, Chevy Chase, and they would have the little, the, the black guy would appear in the little thing for the hearing impaired. <laughs> And he says, our top story tonight, our top story tonight, General Emilio Francisco Franco, General Emilio Francisco Franco is still dead, is still dead. That's the imperfect case. <laughs> That's the imperfect tense. Our top story tonight, General Emilio Francisco Franco is still dead. All right. That's the imperfect tense. So it started in the past. It started at it started at a continuing. It's it started at a specific point in the past and it is continuous to today. Whereas aorist tense past, it started in the past and ended in the past at a specific point in a specific place. And it could be true now, but it may not be. Okay? That's the different that is the precision. That's one of the reasons why I love Greek and I think God wanted the New Testament written in Greek for this reason. The precision of Greek tenses is such that you can say things in one short little phrase that takes the living Bible five and six paragraphs to write. Can I ask you, then, mm -hmm. in verse six, mm -hmm. when he's talking about, and I'm not sure what your version says, but not like says, but now we have received full release from the law. What tense is that? Imperfect. Just, just a second. Let me look. Double tag. Uh, six. Yep. Released. Have been released. Um... While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged. We have been discharged. But now we have been released. Actually, that's perfect, isn't it? Have been. Have been. It's got to be past perfect. Where's P when we need? We have been. It is past perfect. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. Please. It is. I had to. Yeah, it is. Mine it, says that now been. we are delivered. Now, well, that's what that's kind of what mine delivered. says. Uh, but now we are discharged from the death from so past the law. Perfect me is different from imperfect. How again? In English, it's not. Um, Past perfect generally says that it has occurred in the past, it was completed in the past, and it was specifically completed in the past. The action is no longer going on because it's been done. Well, but it's but it's in, but but its effect is still in place. Well that perfectly describes what happened. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it does. The act of Christ dying, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. One, one way you could say that is to say General Emilio Francisco Franco is still dead 
the still dead is the imperfect concept. If he were just to say General Emilio Francisco Franco is dead, that would be the perfect concept, the past perfect concept. He's dead. He died at a certain point in time. It was completed. He's not still dying. All right. I thought he have been declared dead. Would be that that would be literally has been declared. That would be it literally in English. That's perfect. In past perfect, but the concept is yes. in one word. He died <laughs> you know what that and is still dead. <laughs> He's not still dying. He's not continuing to die. You know what? That's done. About the explanation of the imperfect, when you think about when we were in the flesh, I suppose if it was in a tense that meant you were at one time and you're never going to go back there because it's a past completed. It's, it's not it's not past perfect. Yeah, I mean, so that's 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 great because it really does describe that you know we're released from it, but that's not to say you know we couldn't turn back to it. If, if the condition is to. continuous, therefore, it's yeah. possible to go back on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he really hits us with that in the next chapter, doesn't he? General he Emilio Francisco Franco stopped <laughs> being dead and started being alive. Well, Jesus actually did that when he was raised from the dead, or Lazarus did that when he was raised from the dead. <laughs> but that shows you what you can do if it's a simple and perfect case. All right. But now we are, I'm going to get one more verse in than we got last time. That has me in verse 7. But now we are discharged from the law. We are released from the law. We are given freedom from the law. We are divorced from the law. Dead to that which held us captive. The law held us captive. He's saying this to Jewish Christians. The law has held you captive. You've been captive to having to do this and do this and not do this and not do this. You're now freed. To a different set of rules. <laughs> well, to, to living by faith oh. in Jesus, not no longer having to obey the law. Simplified. Not by going through rituals. Not by going through rituals or must-dos and can't-dos, but instead get-to-dos. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves, (laughs) servants, not under the old written code, but under the new life of the Spirit. We're no longer held captive by the written law external to us. We are now servants of the new life of the Spirit. What then should we say? We're going to get one verse tonight. What then should we say? That the law is sin? Hell no. It yet, well, Paul, you just said it aroused my passions earlier on. It aroused the passions of sin. It made me want to sin. Doesn't that make it sin? Hell no. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet the law this is the schoolmaster function right here Mm -hmm. explicated the law's purpose now is not to give you a way to, to do what God wants you to do 
to give you a way to be in relationship with the Creator. That's not the law's function anymore. The law is now, and really the whole essence of the law, and really God's, I believe, Paul means, and I think he's right in this, God's intent in the law is to prove you can't do it. You need to go by that path of faith that Abraham entered into in the covenant that Abraham had. You need to go by faith. And in this case, now, because of Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, who completed that law for you. Because you couldn't do it, he could and did. And then put it to death. He fulfilled it. He completed it. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did not had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity in the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Sin is, is, a, is a force, is a law, is a characteristic that lives within us. Is what he's getting ready to say here. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Well, that sounds awful. Why should we have the law then? It's still there, but it lies dead. It doesn't have control over us which is, sounds really weird. And which is why we're going to come back to this next week. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I mean, the, the commandment promises to give us life eternal. If we keep the law... If we keep the law in all of its particulars from day one and we keep the law in our perfectness God calls us to be perfect, then we can live eternally. But we can't do that. But we can't do that. Therefore, it proves death to us. The law that promises life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. I thought I could become perfect by keeping the law. I thought I could do what God wants me to do by keeping the law. And that very thought kills me. Because I, I can't. I can't do it. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? Hell no. It was sin. Working death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, if you understand what Paul says. And you can, under, you can read this and it would make sense. But if you don't understand what Paul says. When you read this, it's very confusing. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. <laughs> that was confusing. Idea, Can no, you say that again? The, uh, the thought is the thought the thought is that by its very nature, sin becomes more powerful when you see it and recognize it for what it is, and then deny it. And that's what the law does. The law causes us to think. First of all, the law. Well, back it up. The law shows us what sin is. 
We know what sin is because of the law. Thank you, law. You told me what sin was. But then it's enticing to us, and Satan uses it this way. And it's the very part of nature of sin that then perverts the law. Because you say, well, here's the law, and I can read it, and I can comprehend it, and I can then do it. And by doing it, I'll live eternally. By doing it, I'll have a relationship with God. By doing it, I'll live according to the covenant. Therefore, do it. Make it so. Just do it. And the sin nature then comes alive and says, well, since I can't be perfect at it, I'll do the best I can with it. I'll develop a caricature, a list of things that I think are important. And we'll do the best to keep those. And we'll ignore the rest. The church has done that. <laughs> the church is really good at doing that. The Jewish community was great at doing that. And, and they had to interpret how to keep the law. Especially when there were conflicts between what one law said to do and the other law said to do. So the law itself taught, teaches me where sin is, what sin is, what it looks like, and therefore it brings sin to life because it then I then say, well, I can do this and keep it, but I can't. But you think you can. But you think you can. You are fooled into thinking you can. It is pernicious. You only want to keep the ones that you really like and enjoy, you see. And that more importantly, <laughs> and that are easy to do, and more importantly, those laws that apply to other people you really make them keep those. Mm -hmm. The ones that apply to you, ah, forget about it. Mm -hmm. Well, what difference is that now? There's no the difference. Same sin, the same sins are there. Mm -hmm. Well. And you know them and everything else, and you can either do them or not, and sometimes you can't stay away from them. Uh, some people. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to enumerate? <laughs> You know what those passions are that have been aflamed in Lee. But what's the difference now? You know the same you know the same sin. You're just living what? You're living under faith. Rather than you are no longer enslaved to trying to not do those things. Instead, you are living in faith, trusting in God, trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, hence going all the way back to the very beginning of the early church's proclamation about Jesus dying as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Going all the way back to that. And then you're living by faith, trusting that God's grace will then become a law of the Spirit within you. Not an external written law, but as Jeremiah says, the law written on our hearts. It becomes internalized. And what God then does through us, amazingly, starts to look a whole lot like that law which we can't do ourselves. Paul's going to talk about that in a little bit. Not yet, but I think it'll help if we go through this next paragraph and leave it with that. Because when we come back and start over again, it helps to understand what Paul is saying by reading the rest of the, of the chapter. To then go back and see what he means here by 
the law bringing sin to life. I've been explaining it as we go along, but let's finish. Let's, I'm going to pick it up at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Oh, this is the anguish in Paul's writing here is palpable. And I think we all can kind of commiserate with it. Mm-hmm. We know what we what we're called to do. We know what the law tells us we're supposed to do. We know good from evil. We, we ate from the knowledge the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know. We know. But we can't do it. And what we know we should do, we find ourselves not doing. And what we know we should not do, we find ourselves doing. Oh. He just needed to put a law in the man. We cannot do it alone, which is what he's getting to. Yes, exactly. Anyway, everything would have been cool. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's starting to make an argument here that when we sin, it's not us as the Christian sinning. It's the nature of sin within us sinning still. That residue of the old man of sin sinning. Yeah, the flesh. The flesh, the sarks sinning. If you're not careful, he's going to release us from all guilt. In Christ Jesus, there is no guilt. In Christ Jesus, there is no guilt. Guilt. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, 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 as a human, I mean, I'm sure you, all of us, we feel bad that we. Um, you see guilt being bled all over the page here in this paragraph. He's guilty. You hear the guilt, but as a juridical proclamation from God, there is none. That's the, that's the difficulty that we all have, and Paul had. The realization, even though he sees himself doing things that he knows he shouldn't do and doesn't want to do spiritually, he feels guilty about them. So this is a man here, he's taking like in the flesh here. He's, he's not, he's, he's seeing his flesh, he's thinking and, fe- and feeling in the body of Christ. And he's seeing his flesh do all this crap that he doesn't want it to do. And he sees it not doing the good that he wants it to do. And he's saying, oh, I see all of this. And and, and he has this emotional feeling of guilt. What he's going to end up saying is, who will deliver? Well, let's, let's read it. So I find it to be a law... That when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see my members, my hands, my feet, my mouth saying things, my hands doing things. But I see my members, in my members, another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of this death? One of the few places where he uses soma this way. Somatos du thanatu. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, rescue comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <coughs> yes, there is a sense of emotional guilt here. But in Christ Jesus, there is no juridical guilt. Because we can and will be rescued from the body of this death. So we have this juxtaposition of both of, of, of what is true in both cases. There's the spiritual truth and there's the physical truth. The spiritual truth is that we are part of the body of Christ. And by our spiritual minds we know what is right and wrong. We have the law which taught us what was wrong and what is right. But we know we can't do it. If we fool ourselves into thinking we can, we end up sinning even more by subdividing the law off into little segments and trying to keep this part and ignoring that part and applying this part to them over there and that part to them over there. But don't you dare apply that part to me. And all that kind of stuff was going on. And it became so horribly divisive within the Jewish community and destructive within the Jewish community. The passions that were inflamed by the law destroyed the religious faith of many. And Jesus comes along and delivers us from this by dying and taking the law with him and dying so that we can be freed now to live in that relationship that Abraham proclaimed and Paul talked about earlier and that we now live faith focused on Christ who died for us and we are raised with Christ to life and we can now live as Christ wants us to live through him. But then I look and I see within myself my body, my flesh, wanting to do and in fact doing things that my spirit and soul know I, I'm not supposed to be doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, I, I see my hands and, and my feet and my mouth saying things and doing things that I know are wrong. I know I should not do. I know they are not in conformity with Christ's will for me, but I still do them. And the things that I should be doing, I, I know I should be doing, my flesh doesn't do. It's like there's a spiritual, it's not just like, there is a spiritual paralysis here. A spiritual paralysis here. Which is one of the reasons why Jesus so closely links healing and forgiveness. What you see crying out here from Paul in these two paragraphs towards the end of the chapter is his inner sense of realization Yes, I'm guilty. And then he makes the proclamation by faith at the very end that, that, that just pulls it together in verse 25. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't want to miss the last little bit. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. I can see and I can know what I'm supposed to do. And I can want to do it. But my sinful nature causes me to do the other. And and how am I going to get away from this? How am I going to get out of it? What is their deliverance for me? Jesus Christ. And that means living as Jesus calls us to live. Exercising faith. Exercising true belief in all of its manifestations. Accessing grace through the cross. That is how you then live. And when you do that, when you do that, you discover the fruit for God, which amazingly starts to look a lot like this stuff that you can't do. But God does something. been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.